And I have to make a confession after hearing the first two presentations. I have a very thin concept of conscience. Um, I, I think of it as values. Um, so some of you will probably object to what I'm saying, say that that's not really about conscience, and maybe we can discuss that, but apologies for those. I wanted to start off with some, some, um, some cases uh, from Australia and the UK. Um, in, at Monash Medical Centre uh, in Melbourne, uh, a, a, an Afghanistan woman uh, won a, a complaint to the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal for her failing to be able to see a doctor of the opposite sex at an antenatal clinic and the, the hospital was instructed to ensure that, uh, that patients had the opportunity <coughs> to see the, the doctor of the sex of their choice. Um, in, in the UK, there was a high-profile case of a, of a man in London and his son being refused entry to a public swimming pool um, because it was a Muslim father's or Muslim male-only swimming time. Uh, in Australia, uh, there have been Muslim women and children-only swimming times, and uh, some writers on the internet have likened this to a new apartheid. And again, in uh, close to my home, I pick swimming because it's one of my uh, sort of favourite activities. And in fact, this was a pool that I used to go to in Downingong. Uh, they had a session that banned uh, showing shoulders and thighs in the swimming pool uh, at Downingong. And indeed in another swimming pool in, in Melbourne, uh, curtains have had special curtains to ensure additional privacy have, have had to be installed uh, for Muslim women seeking more privacy at a cost of $45,000 to the taxpayer. And in the UK there have been fun parks which have Muslim only days. So I want to ask whether um, this is justified um, and, and how we should think about these sorts of policies. And a swimming pool, in my view, I'm not a, an expert on this, but it is, is a public good. And, and a public good is an item whose consumption is not desired, decided by an individual consumer, but by society as a whole, and it's financed through taxation. So swim, public swimming pools are, are public goods. And economists often refer to public goods as non-rivalous and non-excludable, but they, they clearly can be excluded. You can have certain times for swimming for, for elderly people or for parents and children or no children. Um, and the question is, what principles ought to guide exclusion from public goods? And I would argue two principles ought to guide this. And, and the first one is efficiency. That is maximising the use for the public of that good, and the second one is a principle of fairness. Now, people, and this came up in the first uh, presentation around resource allocation, and you know, in, in my travels around giving talks, people often say you can't put a price on life, and that we shouldn't be, uh, you know, we shouldn't be excluding people about on the basis of the costs of their disease, for example. Um, and I think this is deeply wrong and it's a failure of, of actual moral imagination. Because when you have a limited resource, efficiency just means the number of people who will benefit from that resource. So to consider a simple example, you have one individual with a life-threatening disease that's treatment costs $100,000, or five people whose life-threatening disease costs $20,000. Um, with $100,000 in your budget, the choice is to save one individual or five individuals. Um, 
So with a fixed resource, your money equals numbers of people. So when you decide to, to exclude certain people from a public good, that will result in a similar denial of some people using it and, and, and an inefficiency. Um, now, I'm not a utilitarian, despite what uh, people, people think, and I have, have some sympathy for, um, for egalitarianism. And this is, this is why we don't want to be strict utilitarians about numbers. So imagine you've got $100,000 in your budget and you've got five people with disease A, each with a 60% chance of cure. Each treatment costs $20,000. Five people with disease B each has an 80% chance of cure. Should we treat A or B? According to utilitarians, we should treat B because we'll save, unexpectedly, four people rather than three. But you might think, well, with the numbers being so close, we ought to trade some efficiency for equality. That we ought to give people some chance, at least, with, with disease A of getting treated. And I'm inclined to agree with that, and Dominic and I have done some surveys of the public. And when the chances are similar, or the life expectancy is similar, or the quality of life is similar, people tend towards being more egalitarian. Where there's a big difference in the numbers, or the length of life, or the quality of life, or the prognosis, they tend to be utilitarian. But this suggests that efficiency is not the only goal. We can, we can give up efficiency. So, according to... Um, utilitarianism, though, we should aim at maximum efficiency. According to egalitarianism, we should eschew efficiency altogether and treat people according to need. So when it comes to the swimming pool case, the question, first of all, is how many people should be denied access to this public good for the sake of the value in question? So in the case that I, most of the cases I discussed, it was, it was um, access for Muslim women. And the second criterion besides efficiency, so it's quite possible that you say, no, it is good to sacrifice some efficiency for that value. But the second principle is one of fairness or non-discrimination, to treat like cases alike. And on this view, if women are going to have the opportunity to access female-only doctors, men should have the opportunity to access male-only doctors, or females should have the opportunity to access male, male doctors if that's what they choose. And indeed, this point was made in the, the, VCAT, um, the VCAT decision. Uh, likewise, if you're going to restrict um, access time to one particular faith, it ought to extend to other faiths or no faiths at all. Uh, if you're going to allow nude swimming, you ought to also allow levels of clothes swimming. And if you're going to allow people access according to whether or not they have children, it has to go both ways. So in each of these cases, if once you draw one line around a group, you have to be, you have to be sure that you extend it fairly. <coughs> so you, you need both some level of efficiency and some level of fairness. Um, now, how does this apply to, to, um, to conscientious objection to medicine? I'm going to argue that medicine, public medicine anyway, is a public good. And deciding to exclude certain people from that public good has to follow these rules of reasonable efficiency and reasonable fairness. One claim which I've come across in the literature is that religious values themselves are special. So, for example, Orr and Jenison argued that persistent requests based on deeply held religious beliefs should 
most often be honoured. And treatments which physicians consider inappropriate for some individuals when based purely on personal preference may in fact be appropriate when based on a patient's religious belief. And I think this is deeply wrong. And I think it's discriminatory uh, against people who hold non-religious values. And I'll go on and give some cases of that. So here are a pair of cases in the first set. Three-year-old girl is involved in a car accident and is diagnosed as being brain dead. Her parents refuse to allow her to be taken off the ventilator because, according to their religious tradition, a person is dead when the heart is stopped. Intensive care unit is full and another girl is brought in critically injured. Um, <coughs> critically injured girl's parents are atheists and don't believe in miracles. Case B, a man is in a persistent vegetative state, has previously completed a living will demanding treatment if he ever entered such a state, this is similar to the case of Burke in the UK, because he said he did not believe in an afterlife, um, but that he judged that his state was not worse than death and there was always some chance of cure, no matter how small. It's in my interest to be kept alive, he stated in his living will. Now, both of these are requesting treatment, a limited resource, one on the basis of religious reasons and the other on, a ba on the basis of non-religious reasons. And in my view, they ought to be treated exactly the same. Another pair of cases, a woman has a third relapse of leukaemia after two bone marrow transplants. Her doctors say her chance of surviving at less than one in a million. The health authority responsible for funding this claim say they can't afford it. She quests, requests another bone marrow transplant because she says that a miracle will occur. It's a study of um, Great Ormond Street of um, futile care administered to children and in most of the cases, they were based on uh, religious beliefs uh, of the parents in question. Um, the non-religious example of the case, uh, the woman is an atheist but believes the risks are worth taking. She doesn't care about people who will be denied treatment if she uses up scarce resources in this way. She has no sense of social justice. So in my view, both of these pairs of cases ought to be treated similar. So Jehovah's Witnesses are the, one of the standard examples of um, conscientious objections that are respected. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with Witnesses believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible and that taking blood uh, will mean that they will turn to dust instead of enjoying eternal paradise, so they refuse blood and blood products and they're uh, often offered uh, alternatives um, in some cases, cell savers during surgery. Some witnesses will accept some level of separation of their own blood from their body, um, but they will also accept um, uh, human erythropoietin to increase um, the level of red blood cells prior to prior to um, surgery. So, in an attempt to reduce um, the chance of dying from from blood loss. Uh, back in the 90s, I calculated that the additional measures that witnesses can request amount to several thousand pounds in additional care. So in 2001, in September, I had a uh, very bad skiing accident uh, and, and ruptured an artery to my leg um, and ended up with what's called a compartment syndrome. So I have these very large holes in the side of the leg. Let the tape show that I'm showing people my holes. <laughs> so that's a fasciotomy for a compartment syndrome. Uh, but initially they didn't discover that I'd ruptured my artery. So um, in fact I had a lot of blood loss the, the following day and my haemoglobin went down to five. And um, being a risk averse sort of person and, and uh, not believing in the sort of complete 
efficacy of medicine. I didn't want to have a blood transfusion unless it was really necessary. So I refused to have a blood transfusion. And I was put on a lot of pressure by the uh, medical staff, including friends, to have a blood transfusion. But I stuck to my beliefs despite enormous pressure. Um, but I requested to have EPO because I thought EPO is completely safe. It's synthetically produced. There's no infec infectious risk from EPO. And I offered to pay for it. It's a few thousand dollars to get EPO. And, um, and despite knowing personally the head of haematology, I failed to obtain this EPO um, to, uh, to sort of offset the sort of blood loss and increase the rate of, of, of recovery. And, and the haematologist said there's no evidence that EPO is going to help you in your situation, which is completely correct. No one has done a study of normal people who have had severe blood loss and, and given them EPO. And, and I agree with that, but there's also no reason to believe it's going to be harmful, and there might be some chance of it having an effect, and I was prepared to pay. Um, but I wasn't able to access the EPO. And I, I knew all this because I'd been studying Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and so anyway, I fought and fought and fought, but I didn't get the EPO. And, and um, afterwards at rehab, I was telling this story to the rehab physician. He said, I'm actually a Jehovah's Witness. And he said, you should have called us up. We would have got you the EPO. We would get EPO. In that <laughs> and this is an example of the sort of discrimination that goes against people that have non-religious beliefs. And again, we, we heard today the, this idea of moral integrity and the sort of depth that, that these sorts of values have held and, and the distress that occurs if they're not respected. And again, I don't believe that someone's values ought to be respected according to the to level of distress that, that they have if they're, if they're not respected. Um, that's simply a function of your psychology. I mean, some people tend to be attached to certain sorts of things. Some people are more unhappy. As a general rule, some people tend to get upset when, when they don't get what they want. Other people don't. That doesn't say anything about the value of what they hold deeply. And I think this is a very dangerous way to divide uh, the pie and to decide who gets access or who ought to be treated and who ought not be treated. Um, so medicine is a public good. I think it ought to be dis distributed efficiently and it ought to be distributed fairly. Um, so to take some standard examples, the ones that you're most familiar with would be abortion and contraception, but in fact a study in the, the Journal of Medical Ethics that I edited from Strickland a few years ago of medical students, medical students in the UK now believe they should be able to, to refuse anything on conscientious grounds, including examining patients of the opposite sex or even treating people who are drunk uh, on the basis of their religious beliefs. Uh, Curlin did a study a number of years ago of the extent of, of, um, of uh, conscientious objection in the US. And it's staggering the number of people who are potentially affected. You know, up to 100 million Americans um, may well be affected by physicians who would not provide a service. In assisted reproductive technology, uh, conscientious objection has been alive and well. Uh, even in a, a very tolerant country like the Netherlands, uh, one study of 13 Dutch IVF clinics investigated the reasons for denying people IVF. Um, in one case there was only one spouse, in another case there was a carrier of a genetic disease, in another case the father was old, in another case the person was single, and in other cases they were lesbians. 
So these are cases where people have values about who ought to be reproducing uh, using assisted reproduction and uh, those values determine who gets access. Other value judgments that have influenced medical treatment include whether the person has HIV, whether the person is a criminal, whether they have a mental disorder, whether they're smokers or drinkers. In the UK a number of years ago there was a push not to offer uh, treatment to smokers unless they gave up treatment for smoking because people are too young or they're addicted or obese. Now should these values be accommodated and they have to pass the efficiency and fairness test. Um, so the case of abortion I think is, is an interesting one. Um, I've softened my view on this. I'll come to my previous view that, that, um, that conscientious objection ought not be respected uh, when it threatens the efficiency of a service, which to some degree I still hold. The problem with abortion services is that people have been allowed to enter um, obstetrics and gynaecology with the expectation they can conscientiously object. So they've entered assuming they can perform that range of practices while excluding uh, abortion. So I think we, at this point we either need to change the entry criteria or set up separate highly paid abortion services so that that service is delivered efficiently to women um, who at this point are often frustrated in their search um, for family planning and abortion. Similarly, if euthanasia were to be legalised, it would be unfair to now require palliative care physicians to, to offer euthanasia. But a separate euthanasia service would have to be implemented to, access, to enable efficient access and fair access to people. So the provision of these controversial services uh, may be able to be accommodated with a conscientious objection rider, provided that the service is provided separately. Okay, so uh, I've been a vigorous opponent of conscientious objection, but as I've said, uh, I've somewhat softened the view to think that we can allow some level of conscientious objection, provided the service is, is available somewhere in the health system. Uh, however, health as a public good ought not be excluding people unfairly or excessively inefficiently. So in that article I argue that the determinants of medical care of the law, um, distributive justice, what the person wants, but not the doctor's values. Um, now, I didn't say in that article that doctor's values and moral integrity should play a role in the delivery of care. And I want to just now articulate how I think values ought to play a part of healthcare delivery. They oughtn't prevent an individual from obtaining a legal just service that they desire that's of benefit to them, but they can play a particular role. So years ago I, I distinguished a, a third kind of doctor-patient relationship. The old model of the doctor-patient relationship where doctors uh, decided what was best for the patient and, and, and did that. And, and paternalism is still alive and well. I mean, we just had a very interesting discussion around um, methods of uh, termination of pregnancy later in preg pregnancy, whether the woman is, um, whether the fetus is killed prior to inducing labour or whether the woman has a choice to deliver a live baby 
um, rather than a, a dead baby. And indeed, whether cesarean section should be offered as an option for a later term pregnancy. What typically happens in these sorts of cases is not that a range of options is presented, but one is presented as the option that you can either consent to or reject. Uh, elective caesarean section versus um, normal vaginal delivery is another example where paternalism is alive and well. Uh, the reaction to paternalistic model has been the fact provider model, um, that doctors simply give patients the facts and the options and let them choose themselves. And I think both of these models um, are based on a misunderstanding of the goals of medicine. The goals of medicine, like life, are to arrive at the right course of action for this particular patient. And the way in which we get to the best answer to those dilemmas is through rational dialogue, normative dialogue. Dialogue involving not just facts and not the unilateral imposition of values, but a discussion of the values in question and challenging each other's values and being prepared, I think, as was said in the first talk, to defend our values, but to be willing to openly engage in uh, a discussion about values. So in my view, patients have responsibilities as moral agents to process information rationally, to form conceptions of the good life, to be autonomous, to consider the facts, and to engage in normative dialogue. And doctors too, as moral agents, have an obligation to present their views, not just of the facts, but also what they believe is the best course of action for this particular patient in these circumstances. So when it comes to a controversial practice, such as um, artificial reproduction for a single, single person, uh, abortion, sterilisation, amputation of a healthy limb, uh, sex reassignment. Any of these controversial practices where people reasonably differ in their values, in my view, doctors are entitled and indeed should present their values and engage in a dialogue about what the patient ought to do. So I think it's perfectly reasonable for a doctor to say to me, I think abortion is wrong, or I mean, maybe in my case, sterilisation is wrong. <laughs> You shouldn't, you shouldn't have a vasectomy for the following reasons. You should go forth and multiply or whatever his reasons are. And I should engage with that argument. Um, Robert Veach had an idea of the doctor-patient relationship that looked at this normative element and he talked about deep value pairing. He said you should seek out doctors that have the same values as you. And I think that's wrong. I think you should engage with people who have different values and maybe seek a range of doctors with different values. But this kind of normative dialogue, I think, is essential to life and to medical practice. But importantly, once the dialogue is finished, if the treatment is legal, if the treatment's plausibly in the person's interests, if it's sanctioned by justice, then the doctor ought to provide it, or at least ensure that the patient has access to it. Um, so. I think conscience, in this sense, having a diversity of values is important. And the standard medical practices don't disclose your values. Um, in fact, just withdraw if you really disagree with what the patient is doing. And I think that, that, uh, that frustrates the path towards making the best moral judgment and empowering the patient with moral dialogue. So 
Um, far from uh, not having any place in, in medicine, I think conscience is very important. Um, but it shouldn't restrict access to public goods um, that result in excessive inefficiency or unfairness. Now today, um, people's views are influencing access in a wide range of conditions. Um, I did surveys of both obstetricians and geneticists um, around conditions uh, that they would be willing to facilitate treatment of uh, termination of pregnancy um, for. And these are people who routine, routinely deal with fetal abnormalities and termination of pregnancy. And we asked for a whole range of conditions, starting with anencephaly, hypoplastic left heart, very severe medical conditions, all the way through to Down syndrome, deafness, and then terminations for social reasons. Um, and 40%, um, only 40% of these professionals would be prepared to facilitate a termination for career reasons uh, at, at 30 weeks, at 13 weeks. Um, so what you see there is a, a, an unwillingness to engage in what is a core part of the job. Um, so whether you get a termination of pregnancy, even in a major, a major centre like the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, will depend on who you happen to see and their particular values. Um, now imagine that an intensivist refused to treat people over the age of 70 because on his, his view the fair innings argument was correct. It's a completely reasonable value. Um, or imagine an anaesthetist refused to protect the airway of a patient having a CT scan because of concerns about exposure to radiation. Um, in both of these cases people are acting according to their values. But those values are not the kinds of values that ought to be dictating practice in those circumstances. Uh, it may well be reasonable to, to lobby uh, at the policy level governments or professional organisations to, to place age limitations on intensive care. But the imposition of those at the bedside according to one's own set of values is inappropriate. Just as it would be inappropriate for Jehovah's Witness physician to decide on the basis of his values not to administer a blood transfusion. The important point in all of these cases, and this is, um, I guess, was behind my first question, is moral integrity or conscience or acting according to your values is important um, in how you lead your own life, whether you decide to have a blood transfusion, whether you decide to have a sex change operation, whether you decide to have IVF, whether you decide to, to engage in homosexual activity. And you should li live your life according to your values. But those values, when when involved with public goods should not dictate other people's access to public goods. Um, and as I've said, in practice there's great discrimination against non-religious values uh, in the access uh, and dis distribution of public goods. So uh, I think we ought to give greater weight to patient values unless uh, patients are harming others, or what they want is illegal, or they're using resources un uh, unjustly. And doctors can appeal to their conscience to argue and try to persuade patients and not merely provide facts and options. They're not mere instruments or fact providers. Um, but what they oughtn't be are paternalistic according to their own values. Uh, and people ought to have the freedom to form and act on their own conception of the good life, and medicine is an important part of 
a way of them realising that. So although I believe that conscientious objection has a limited place in medicine, provided it doesn't limit overall access, I think the reality of today's, um, today's medical practice is very often those values are influencing people's access to services that they ought to have access to. Thank you.